Welcome to the 244th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. What are some of the biggest barriers to farmers gaining access to local markets for vegetables? That was a key question Emily Reno hoped to address when she launched a study of Agua Gorda Cooperative in early 2020. The cooperative is run by Latino farmers and is located in Long Prairie in central Minnesota. It raises produce for wholesale markets, mostly in the Twin Cities region, which is a two-hour drive away. Agua Gorda was interested in learning how it could increase wholesale markets in the Long Prairie region, thus reducing travel time and helping provide healthy food to local eaters. The cooperative felt it needed an extensive market analysis to determine what opportunities were out there, as well as what changes were needed to take advantage of those opportunities. Reno undertook the market analysis for the Community Assistantship Program, which is coordinated by the University of Minnesota Center for Urban and Regional Affairs and the Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships. For the study, Reno, who recently wrapped up her master's work in urban and regional planning at the U of M, conducted dozens of interviews with buyers, service providers, farmers, and local businesses to learn more about their desires for specific varieties, the challenges for farmers, and what resources were available. She also did a significant literature review. As a result of her research, Reno was able to identify numerous barriers and opportunities when it comes to marketing wholesale produce in an area like central Minnesota. Not surprisingly, one major barrier is the lack of efficient transportation, as well as a lack of consistent, clear communication between farmers and potential customers. And a big problem is that local institutions and businesses simply aren't aware of the economic multiplier effect that's generated when regional farmers producing food for local markets are supported. But Reno also identified another major impediment specific to farmers who are recent immigrants and whose first language is not English. It turns out these farmers don't have good access to some of the key agricultural resources provided by government agencies like the Natural Resources Conservation Service or institutions like University Extension. It's not good enough to just provide a fact sheet or application form in Spanish. Farmers attempting to access educational materials, cost share funds, and other support resources also need to work with public employees who have what's called cultural competency, which is an understanding not only of the farmer's language, but also an awareness of the cultural differences that farmers grappling with. When Reno produced her final report on the market analysis, she included several recommendations for helping wholesale produce operations like Agua Gorda access local markets such as improving communication and investment in technical tools such as a website. But just as key, Reno concluded, was developing an institutional infrastructure based on cultural competency. I recently talked to Emily about her research for Agua Gorda and its implications for farms of all types attempting to access local markets. She started out by describing why lack of cultural competency is such a major barrier and ways it can be addressed. 24 out of 39 of my interviews were with people that worked with what I would consider like these support uh, service groups for farmers. So that could be people with um, extension. It could have been with the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Health. Um, MISA, I think, was represented as well. And I thought that it was really interesting how when I would have these conversations, what were the perceptions of the barriers for wholesale farmers to get into this, um, and especially Latino growers. 
there was this sort of sentiment of not understanding how to engage with those communities and that there had been problems in the past with making an attempt, but it just wasn't effective and they didn't want to keep trying because they didn't feel like they were having any success or, or making progress. And one of the other things that I noticed as well was just the fact that among the people who I interviewed, there were no people of color. The only people of color really that were represented through my study were the farmers. Um, and so I think one of the things that I have learned along the way, and I think was especially salient as part of my own involvement in uh, a po- program called the McNair Scholars Program, um, this is a, it's like a pipeline program basically for like low-income first-generation minority students to eventually get a doctoral degree. And one of the biggest lessons that I took away from that experience was the fact that if you don't have leaders and role models in your life that look like you, that talk like you, that there's a lot less validity in what's being said. And it sort of goes to that idea of like, it's not the the message, but the messenger. And I think that when it comes to having access to some of these resources, it's the same, you know, among Latino growers, that if that if the person who's who's sharing this information with them doesn't necessarily share any of their cultural values or their language, that it just, it's really challenging. Even if, even if the attempt is from a good place, I think that proper engagement and involvement of diverse growers requires a different way of thinking and in really trying to find ways to empower some of the people who already have those close community connections to be that messenger um, and, and to really find allies within the community that way. I think that's a really good point because one of the things, uh, one of the ways I see that maybe some of the, these issues dealt with is, well, we'll hire an extension educator who speaks Spanish. But that sounds like that's not enough. Yeah, and we had a, we had a really compelling uh, conversation not too long ago. It was a local food advisory committee meeting where there's a lot of representation of uh, sort of state state level actors, if you will, in this space. And and one of the questions that they had for me when I was talking about some of this work was, where where do you go once you've moved beyond the point of translation? Because really, a lot of people think that just translating a document is enough or that translating a website is enough, but you're, you're missing the whole picture. It's so much more than just a language barrier. It's, it's creating a sense of belonging for people and that they, they are there for a reason and they can contribute and that they have just as much dignity as, as anybody else. It's just like, it's so systemic that it was, it was fascinating. I was part of this uh, conversation through, it was called like Open Minnesota or the Bold Open, something like that. And uh, they, they had somebody come in from a, a, like a financial lending institution and they were sort of giving a pitch as to creating uh, some kind of a service for diversified farms to be able to help them access uh, financial lending tools, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they talked about how big their company is and, and they want to innovate, that they don't think that they need more employees, that they just need better solutions. And there was a question about, well, are you familiar with you know just the characteristics in general of smaller scale farmers? 
And it was funny because she said that, yes, well, we think that there's probably some differences, but she couldn't, this representative from the company couldn't list any of those things. And I think that that's so critical. It's like you really have to ground yourself in the experience of not having grown up on a farm, perhaps being transplanted from a different country, and then thinking about how does that impact your financial situation when you're here? You may not necessarily have the same you know, access to credit because of your credit store. Uh, you may not have access to collateral because you've left everything that you did have in your community, maybe in a different country. You may not have ever owned a vehicle in the past that could prove that you know, you, you can make payments on something. And so there's, there's that piece. But then also, like I mentioned before, there's a cultural piece that maybe lending looks very different for um, other cultures in the sense that the, they're, you're more likely to borrow from your family and friends before you would ever approach a lending institution, just because that's not really considered uh, your, your first thought. Is that something that you, uh, as you were getting those results, that you uh, really thought more about, okay, how do I get this message across to government agencies, uh, edu- educational institutions, that kind of thing? I mean, were you changing a little bit what you thought maybe your audience was for a study like this? Uh, as a- yeah, so I think for that, it's important to recognize that I was asked to create, to, to conduct a regional market analysis and to provide a set of marketing recommendations. And that was something that I had done before in terms of, uh, you know, creating marketing recommendations. But what happened was because so many of the interviews that I did as part of this project were with employees of, of some of these state agencies, nonprofits, that I ended up finding so much of that content rich in opportunity that I just didn't want to leave it out of the final report. And it definitely, you know, it made it a lot longer than I was anticipating, but I also think it just opened up so many more doors that I didn't even see existed. You know, I think a lot of times we get we get excited about this idea of, of local foods and selling to urban centers, but there's just so much more diversity within our food system that that doesn't get a lot of PR. We talk a lot, especially in the state of Minnesota, about, you know, selling to the Twin Cities and and to Duluth and places like that. And that's great. And I think it's really important that we have that. But there's a whole other side of the population that lives in small towns and rural places, and they want to eat good food too. And I think a lot of this study is about thinking differently about that infrastructure that supports those farmers and those people, those communities, to be sure that, that there isn't such a drastic difference in our access to good food, whether you live in an urban or rural place. I mean, what, how much did just plain old systemic racism play into some of this? I mean, some of it is, oh, there's a language barrier, or there's, a, you know, cultural barriers, but did you find there was just some plain... I mean, just the racism of somebody who looks different than everybody else in the community, that that issue. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a there's a really big piece here with, I guess, just the the documentation and and the grant applications and stuff that are they're only available in one language. But then you start talking to some of the people behind it and you just realize that 
you know, I think one of my questions that I asked somebody was about, have they thought about their hiring practices and trying to get bilingual employees, even just as a start? And, and it was interesting because, you know, the person I was talking to was very frank about the fact that, no, actually that wasn't a priority for them, but that maybe it should be. And I remember talking to somebody who was involved in um, kind of like water quality conservation and some of their programs and, and the fact that the, the demographics with among farmers and just among the general population are shifting a lot and that if we are to sort of be ahead of the curve and in, in thinking forward thinking about how we approach some of these issues that we have to apply a greater sense of cultural competency and understanding to the way that we work with communities so that they don't continue to feel left out of this conversation. And it was interesting to me because he was such a senior level person within this organization. And he was like, I'm so glad we had this conversation because this never would have been on my radar. And so that was just, it was so eye-opening because I think this is, this is a conversation that I have every day. These are things I think about all the time. And so it, it was a helpful reminder for me to recognize that we have a lot of work to do um, and we have to start somewhere. And if that's just having that conversation, you know, that's, that's a really good place to start. Did you look at other, as you were preparing for the study or even as you were writing up the results, other similar studies? I mean, does this, is there some other studies that have found similar things or vastly different things? Or Yeah, so I would say that in terms of a study that was using the same types of methods as myself, that was not easy to find. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's because it's not there. But it wasn't what I was looking for. One of the things that was kind of driving my sort of angle at it was thinking about what are other agricultural cooperatives using in terms of their marketing strategies Mm -hmm. to rural places. And that was where the huge gap was in the research. That there's just like not a lot of people talking about rural food systems in general. Mm -hmm. It's very much based around people selling to urban centers. There's a lot of information that's available about small-scale diversified farms or farmers that are selling directly to people, but not a lot of information that's available about wholesale farmers that are doing it at, at a small scale. And so that was where it was really challenging to be able to make comparisons because there just wasn't a lot there. And I think that really speaks to just the gap that we have in the market um, and the, the consolidation that we see and the risk that exists in the food system because we don't have as many mid-scale wholesale farmers. But I think it also just speaks to the way that the, the market pushes these farmers out. And that was, that was one of the most interesting things I learned about this project, that it's not even the fact that if you are, if you are good at what you do, you naturally have the market working against you if you're selling in the wholesale space. And this is just because of the way that the farm bill is set up and the fact that you are suddenly placed within a commodities market where direct-to-consumer markets aren't really dealing with that. But suddenly you're trying to sell to uh, an elementary school and they've got pennies to spend on each of their ingredients that they have. And it's really challenging for a lot of food service directors to understand that the, the cost in labor associated with processing fresh foods 
can actually be equivalent to what it would take to pull something out of a can. And there's a lot of misconceptions about some of those costs and in finding ways, I think, to communicate that better with people who are in charge of buying um, and finding champions within you know, spaces like that who can sort of take this and run with it, I think is really important. And I think I'm, I really do want to give credit, though, to the Department of Agriculture for the work that they've been doing on emerging farmers. I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm just so proud of, of the work that is being done in Minnesota on food systems because, and that's one of the reasons actually why I moved here, is that when you look at sort of food policy nationally, Minneapolis constantly comes up as sort of a, a role model or a case study that people are looking towards f- to figure out, you know, how do we do this and, and what are what are they doing to innovate? And I think what I would really like to see is have that extend beyond just these urban centers and say, what are they doing in rural Minnesota that other rural communities across the country can also model after? What we're seeing is that Basically, the minority populations are increasing to the point that at some point in the very near future, very near, meaning probably, I don't know, by like 2030, 2050, they won't be considered the minority any longer. And and that's true, actually, for, I think, across the entire United States, that will be a what is it, majority-minority mm-hmm. country, which is super exciting. Um, I think that there's so much opportunity there to think about what does that cultural diversity mean for our communities and, and what does that mean for our foodscape? You know, what does that mean in terms of things that we'll have access to that, that we didn't in the past and, and how can we support and embrace that instead of keeping people in a system of oppression that prevents them from from making a decent life for themselves. Yeah, I think I think we're going to see a lot more um, products that are offered that are more, I guess, culturally specific. And I think one of the things I'm most excited about is to see, especially within sort of the, the health space or nutrition foods, um, I guess the natural food space, is just how some of those options will adapt and change to think more about that inclusivity piece and, and what it means to have culturally appropriate foods uh, that are good for you. Because there's so much of a, a legacy of, I guess, just minority populations and chronic disease, and that's associated with a lot of things, so much structural pieces within our communities, where people live, how far they have to get to a grocery store. But then there's also just that social piece of of making people feel like outsiders and that they're not good enough. And it's just, I think that it's time for those things to change. You come up with uh, kind of several action steps or future steps as a result of, uh, of the research you did and what some of your results were? Yeah, so some of the the things that I recommended were specific to Agua Gorda in terms of how they could improve their own marketing within the community. And I sort of outlined that between the next three months, the next six months, and then within the next year. And And some of those, I think, are actually applicable to a lot of other types of farmers at this point in time. And and one of the first things that I recommended was just identifying between three to five new market channels um, and exploring some of those and what opportunities there might be to sell through those and who the primary contact people would be, reaching out to them and starting to establish that relationship. 
the second thing I think I talked about within that section was this idea of just getting the word out there that Agua Gorda is still in business. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems so obvious that you should do that but it's it's actually not as common as you might think that that people just sort of assumed that that things were closed and especially early on when things were changing there's just a lot of fear and and people weren't necessarily communicating at all so just making sure that you can utilize some of those community channels to get the word out there, like the Chamber of Commerce. They do an awesome job of posting in both English and Spanish different announcements from the community and from their local businesses and so things like that. Um, And then also just thinking about newsletters that people have that they send out maybe on a weekly, monthly basis and asking them to just share that, yes, we are indeed open and and we would love your business, that kind of thing. Really important. Um, the other thing that I talked about was this idea of identifying some mentors, actually, for Agua Gorda because I think In order to address some of that sort of social piece of of understanding how to navigate these systems and also just how to build a really good business, you can't do it alone. And I think that Agua Gorda, they have done such an incredible job that I don't think anyone wants to see them go away. They are really famous, actually, in the Twin Cities. But then you go to Long Prairie and you ask somebody about Agua Gorda and they they don't even know what that is or where they're located. So finding ways that they can sort of tap into the knowledge of of perhaps other wholesale producers who have been really successful in, in maybe getting some of those grants, maybe putting additional infrastructure on their farm, those would be great kinds of people for Agogorda to connect with in order to really maintain themselves as an asset to the community and, and let other people know that, that they're around. And I think in terms of the like the year-long goals, part of that was also looking at uh, just reviewing the financials. Um, I think that's a common thing to just sort of overlook, but that's a super important piece, especially in the wholesale market. Margins are just so tight that any way that you can sort of minimize your costs, um, that just puts more money back into the pockets of farmers. And I think the other thing that I talked about was, was really working on finding ways to partner with some of the, the area technical colleges and even the University of Minnesota Extension because there's so many resources and information and smart people that would love to find ways to apply their learning in real-world settings. And I'm super passionate about that because of my own experiences in applied learning and just the way that it's transformed how I understand and utilize you know, the research process. And, and I think that there's a lot of practical things that, that people could be learning. And, and when they can see that the work that they're doing as part of maybe an educational program is helping people that they know in the community versus some of these abstract ideas, it's so much more tangible and fulfilling for people. Is there one or one or two major barriers right now that could be removed that kind of stand in the way of some of these steps being some of the steps that you had proposed, some of the uh, action steps? That, have you thought about that? What could be if we could just in the near term and maybe long term too, what is some barriers that we could remove uh, to let this move forward a little bit? It's great that you asked this question because 
I think my answer actually has been something I've been mulling over for several months, if not a couple of years, because I've just, I've been working in food for so long and I see, I've seen and have familiarized myself with these issues that it's just kind of commonplace that you assume that the system is broken and that whoever is working on the margins is really who you need to be sort of pushing towards the center and supporting because that's that's where really cool creative stuff comes out of. But I think that the thing that's missing from this report actually and I think is one of the biggest barriers that that prevents people from moving forward in a really positive way on some of these issues is mindset. And I don't think that we talk enough about the power that mindset has over the way we lead our lives, the way we show up at work, and the way that we see problems. And one of the things that I'm really interested in pursuing in the future is finding ways to work with people to really dig at where the beliefs are coming from that have us see the system as broken, that have us see, you know, minority farmers as less than white farmers, and and just find ways to get rid of that and replace them with, with much more positive and abundant thoughts and beliefs, and especially in rural places where there's such divisiveness I think we talk about urban and rural places and what would it look like if we moved beyond that conversation and turned that into an us and a we conversation and this sense of interdependence that we have so I think that's that's the biggest thing in my mind in terms of you know in the short term I guess (laughs) what, what people could do but in terms of of the long term I mean, we have such a such a royal opportunity right now when our food systems are being disrupted in such a big way, when the fragility is being exposed so explicitly, that what would it look like to invest in the infrastructure that supports smaller scale farmers and regional systems as opposed to statewide systems or these urban rural systems and and some of the recommendations that I talk about are you know some of those uh those basic needs that that farmers don't have access to such as access to transportation networks such as you know refrigerated trucks they just they don't necessarily have the funds to be able to invest in that themselves but if there is processing and storage facilities if we could find ways to bring back you know canneries to to small towns and um, really open up a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurship I think through those have people see the pipeline for themselves where they fit within that system I think that could be really powerful. You know, we see we see a lot of well what do we see, right? I think that's the question. And and I think that I I read a great book not too long ago that was talking about the farm laborers in Vermont and this sort of bucolic imagery that we have that that's displayed on all of these packages of products that we're buying. Yet what's actually happening on the farm looks very different and the people who are there are very different than than what we see 
And I think that in a similar way, un- unless you're really steeped in these issues and in, in the way that I and a lot of my colleagues have been, the average consumer doesn't really know what's happening behind those lines. And, and I saw that as a housekeeper, as a waitress, you know, I was there working side by side with many undocumented immigrants. I know what it feels like to be pressured for time and to just be getting paid pennies for the work that you're doing. And, and we are invisible in that space. And I think that what this is doing right now, this pandemic, is it's bringing to light for a much greater part of the population mm. what that experience feels and looks like. Yeah. And I think that as we move forward, we have to take that into consideration, that it's, that it's, it's not dignified to keep putting people in that position and that there needs to be a lot more love and compassion and kindness in anything that we do to try to repair our food system. What's kind of the final take-home message you hope people, and I guess what maybe throw into that a little bit, what do you see, who do you see as the audience for a study like this, or who should be gaining some valuable insights from this you must have thought about your audience a little bit and it sounds like maybe it shifted a little bit but think about that talk about that and what kind of take-home message you'd like to see those audiences get right so I mean I think there's there's two sides of it there's definitely the consumer side I think that there's a lot that just just average people can understand about how how the system works and and where some of the the weak points are in, in the food that's being brought to them. Um, and I think that in terms of the, the message that I would want, you know, those groups to take away from this is that you have a lot more power with your dollar than you think. Mm. And that simple things like asking your produce manager where the local produce is, where are the Minnesota-grown products? Do you have a Minnesota, you know, made section can we get something like that here? Those kinds of things really stick with people. And the more and more frequently that those questions are being asked, the greater the perception is that there is demand for it. So there's that point. And then there's the other side, which I think is a lot of just kind of the, the support agencies that I talked about, people who are working in the public sector, for nonprofits that that are trying to find ways to support farmers. I think the main takeaway from that is to start with yourself and to start now. Don't wait until tomorrow, you know, do your homework, figure out where where you are on on your spectrum of of cultural competency and understanding and and don't be afraid to fail. And to stumble along the way and to make a fool of yourself because we all are doing it every single day. Mm-hmm. But what matters is the attempt and the intent. It's got to be there. And it doesn't matter what your colleagues are doing. You can be the first person and it's okay. Emily? 
Reno's Spring 2020 Study for Agua Gorda Cooperative is available at conservancy.umn.edu by searching the title, Taking Advantage of This Moment and Opportunity, Regional Market Analysis and Marketing Recommendations. More information on the community benefits of local food systems is available on LSP's website at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.